Welcome to A Trip to Space, a podcast looking at, well, space, the orbital economy, new discoveries, and the people that have been there or make it possible for us to go there. This week, I speak to Ed Gibson, one of the last astronauts on the Skylab space station, NASA's only ever fully funded space station. And I started by asking him what the experience was like on board. What is the surprise to you is the perception of height, which you get outside that you don't have inside. That when you go outside, you look down at the ground and there's nothing between you and the ground. Uh, there's no uh, windows, there's no, no uh, walls, no handholds. It's just you and the ground 270 miles down. And that really gives you the feeling of height. Um, it's exhilarating, actually. Once you get used to it, it's a normal way because you're, you're just like any other uh, satellite up there just floating along. Does it change your perception of the world below? Well, I think the whole experience of the flight on the, on the Skylab as well as the spacewalks changes your perception because it makes you realize how, how one we are, um, how uh, this world is really uh, not just uh, made up of individual countries, but we're all humanity. And uh, granted that we do have different countries and different customs and different interests, but you get much more of that feeling of we are one and we all behave that way. What was the food like on board? I mean, recently on the ISS, they, they made their own muffins. <laughs> what was the food like on Skylar? Well, we, didn't, we didn't make our own muffins, but the food was very good. Okay. Uh, and despite uh, requirements on it, we had a, an experiment up there uh, called Mineral Balance, and they, wanted, they picked out six major minerals that the body uses and uh, measured that uh, in all the food, calibrated it, measured it as it went into it. And then they also had the uh, ability to measure what comes out of us. But the, the food was excellent. We had lobster Newberg, filet mignon. Yeah, it was, it was very well done. I was really surprised and, and happy. And I used my hats off to them all, all the way. We had also something called empty calories. That is, if we wanted to eat something, which didn't have any of those six minerals in it, then they had things up there like butter cookies and, and other things that were, were really the things you munch on down here, uh, not as a stable for your meal, but just you know, some, something on the side to eat. Now, we all, unfortunately, all three of us liked the butter cookies, and we had a limited supply of them. So the butter cookie uh, soon became the monetary unit of Skylab. With a large environment, it was not like a cell. Yeah, um, of course. Yeah, we, we had, uh, I don't know, 14,000 cubic feet or something that, to that effect. And uh, one day when I was off looking for uh, some of the um, data from the previous missions that we had to reuse, I was working behind a, a, a large structure, and they were looking around for me, and they said they lost me for about a half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> they looked out, saw the, the command module was there, so they knew I didn't sneak off in the command module anywhere. What were the sort of antics you guys got up? Um, you know, the air is is a fluid, just like uh, just like water is, except one's the density is exceptionally different. Now, Bill tried uh, putting paddles on his feet and his hands to see if he could fly through the air um, in the same way you could fly through water. And um, it was it was funny to watch, but he was he didn't have much success, but he sure was funny to watch. 
So there, there won't be any uh, future Olympic sports of uh, air swimming. I don't think so. No, I, <laughs> I, um, now they might have a sport of how many um, uh, barrel rolls or how many somersaults can you do? I, I think I have the world record for 10 and a half gainers, which is, you know, backflips. Um, nice. But, so I was never, never received any recognition from the Olympic <laughs> Committee on one day, let's get that on Wikipedia. Um, so you're you're an expert in solar physics. How did being in space and seeing the sun from a very different vantage, without the the moderating effects of the atmosphere, change your perception of the of our star? Well, it was uh, it was very refreshing because we had nothing between our instruments and the sun itself, so we could look at the corona, the region around the sun, for example, um, just like we do down here, but. Uh, down here, we have to wait for a solar eclipse. Up there, we could see the um, atmosphere of the sun anytime we were in sunlight. So that was that was a prominent difference. And, uh, and we could see the uh, explosions on the sun very clearly. They're called uh, flares. So, yeah, we, we really enjoyed it. Uh, there was much more um, connections between us and, and what we're observing than we do down here with uh, this air... Uh, um, modulating air between us. That's uh, an area of science that's been rapidly evolving. You've got the Parker uh, solar probe um, on its way to the sun. Has Is it something you still keep track of? Uh, I, I observe, I've I, I tried to uh, keep track of what's happening in the field, but obviously not like when I was doing the observations myself. Yeah. Uh, the real trick is to try to understand how a solar flare occurs. That's one thing. And um, we got uh, the uh, from birth to to uh, the middle age of a flare, but unfortunately, the resolution of our instruments was not enough to really uh, see the details when it, of how it happened. It, okay. it really comes about because a magnetic field gets uh, twisted and contorted and, and stores a bit of energy, and then when that um, field realigns itself, that all that energy is released. And that's what gives you a flare. Unfortunately, we could not see the details of that once we got back down on the ground. We were proud of ourselves because we did get data from the right from the beginning to um, the middle age of a flare, but we just didn't didn't learn all that much more visually. What was it like closing the door, being the last person on board this incredible creation that no one else was going to step foot in again? Yeah, well, we didn't know whether anybody was going to step foot in there or not, so we. We didn't lock anything up. We didn't know whether it'd be another uh, uh, crew from uh, from the free world or whether it was going to be the Russians. Okay. So uh, we uh, we left. Um, uh, I think we left a few things inside as greetings to whoever came, but uh, we didn't know what it was going to be, who it was going to be. So so no no. And obviously it wasn't anybody. So we were <laughs> It must have been quite. Was it upsetting when you saw the deorbit? It was, in a sense, because we knew that it had a lot of life left in it, and it could have been used again. Um, but on the other hand, we said, well, we've learned a lot from this. Let's get on with building a bigger and better one. Yeah. So that's, that was more in our minds at that time. Okay. And, and a question I've always wanted to ask, does it, does it hurt when you walk for the first time in normal Earth gravity after being in zero gravity? Uh, it's not really a pain, but you do feel uh, very unstable. Um, it's just like laying in down in bed and, and you jump out of bed in the morning 
and all of a sudden all the blood from your head rushes towards your toes and you and you you feel a little faint well that was the same thing that happened to us but uh, fortunately that that was anticipated so we had we wore g suits when we came back meaning okay. um we had something we compressed the uh, compress our legs to keep the, the blood in the upper part of our body so uh, we didn't pass out we felt uh, we could move around pretty well once we got back a little unstable it was kind of like coming home from a party late friday night uh, you had to be really careful uh, but you know as soon as you got your as soon as you got your legs back and uh, and everything was fine uh, skylab was an american project the iss is global well, how do you feel about that what are your thoughts on on it is it the legacy of skylab well, I think we learned a lot from Skylab, which helped the people on the International Space Station. Uh, I'm glad to see it's international. Uh, we, we should be doing things uh, in a cooperative manner, just like uh, when we started out with the uh, Paolo Soyuz, when we started working with the Russians. And they were no longer our adversary, but our our our, uh, our team members. And that's, uh, that's a good thing to have when you're – because when we were up there, we were all thinking the same thing, trying to get the job done. And whether God or what nation you're coming from, you all have the same motives. Uh, you know, you want to uh, perform with excellence and you want to cooperate. And uh, so space, uh, working in space together is, is a good thing. We shouldn't use that as a, we shouldn't extend the, our battleground down here up in the space. That's interesting because there was an announcement by the Russian Space Agency um, they've decided to go on their own with the Chinese space agency and build a base on the moon um, rather than partnering with the U.S. So maybe we're starting to drift in the other direction again. Well, it could be. Uh, I think we could if we could get our uh, our nation to uh, support in an aggressive way uh, what we're doing in space. We've we've kind of drawn withdrawn here a little bit. So uh, I I think. Uh, Eventually, we will cooperate. Do you, do you ever think? Well, China, now, China has been a concern of ours yeah. uh, because when we tried to cooperate, uh, um, we felt that the cooperation that they desired was more because they wanted us uh, to learn the technologies which you're using as opposed to uh, working together in a, in a joint in a joint effort. So that's, um, and I'm sure the same is true with what's going on there now. I'm sure the Chinese are uh, learning all they can from them the russians and what are your thoughts on the rise of commercial space travel i mean elon musk's sending astronauts you've got commercial space planes effectively sending astronauts to the international space station the the next lunar lander is going to be built by a commercial company oh, i think move? it's great oh i think it's great the same is true with almost every effort we have over here the government uh can be the precursor and do it but if you really want um one thing's done to perfection. You get a private company with the motive, with the profit motive, as well as other motives to make it happen. So I'm I'm really glad to see Elon Musk come in and uh, and um, exert his technical expertise to, to make something happen. I mean, look, if he wants to do something, he just goes ahead and does it. He doesn't have to wait for uh, uh, two or three years as some uh, effort moves through Congress. Yeah. And it brings the cost down. I mean, I think he, uh, a Falcon 9 launch is, is a few thousand dollars at, per kilogram now compared to tens of thousands of dollars. Sure. Sure. Yeah, well, he, he does it. He's very cost conscious, obviously. And 
So anything that's not leading to the effort or, or leading to the end result, you know, it gets sidelined. Yeah. Well, over here, you get contracts filled in and, um, well, it just goes on forever and ever. <laughs> and, and, and this was just starting to, to wrap up. I, I did a story recently about a space hotel. You know, the, the Gateway Foundation are working on a, um, a, a sort of circular hotel that would have lunar gravity. Um, if you could go up into space, if you could go and stay on a space hotel, would you do it? Um, well, I would like to. Uh, I wouldn't mind going flying again. Uh, but I think uh, if it was a space hotel, for example, and uh, a lot of other people were going, that'd be fine. But I wouldn't want to take anybody's spot. For example, uh, um, if, if the current uh, space program uh, decided that they want to learn more about uh, what happens to an aging old body in space, you know, I'd be glad to offer myself. But uh, I, I would not want to take the place of anybody who's been working for a long time to go into space and, uh, and really accomplish something. And, and, that's, and, and finally, should we be pushing to land humans on Mars or should it be a robotic discovery? Oh, we ought to push uh, to land humans on Mars. I think we ought to be pushing to, uh, to move humanity uh, out through, uh, throughout our solar system where, where it's possible and eventually beyond. Uh, we're just we're just as humans just getting out of our cradle and starting to look around and wondering who uh, who else is out there. So um, yeah, we've uh, we're bound to uh, extend our human life beyond Earth, and it's only a question of uh, how fast that happens.